Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Markets are eerily quiet. Stock indices are calm, volatility is low, and the VIX fear gauge has plunged to pre-pandemic levels. But is this the quiet before the storm? With the US debt ceiling now resolved, some fear that replenishing the Treasury's coffers will be the trigger that rattles the serenity of markets. And in today's dumb question of the week, how do minimum volatility funds work? And do they work? Okay, let's get into it. So, Roman, in 2023, we've got an ongoing war in Europe. We've had a bit of a banking crisis in the US. Defaults are picking up and Philip Schofield has left morning TV. So we're in a dangerous situation in many ways. Yet markets are calm. Doesn't seem to be much volatility or fear. Yeah, poor Holly Willoughby. I mean, she's just got to battle on alone, hasn't she? But yeah, I think it's true that the kind of complacency that you see now is quite shocking. Because, you know, all of these things are going on and we've got an earnings recession and yet markets don't seem to be pricing in much risk at all. So you're saying it's the perfect time to panic? Well, you know, whenever things are really quiet, you just think, well, why? And um, what's going to happen next? It just seems to be that we're punch drunk from all of these successive crises that seem to hit us. You know, we've got COVID and then we have the debt ceiling. You know, it just makes me think, you know, what could be next? It was kind of interesting how markets basically looked through the debt ceiling, didn't they? There was a spike in yields for the bonds maturing at the X date when they thought the US might default. But other than that, markets were just like, eh, we think this is all a pantomime. And they were right. Yeah, because, you know, they've always been right about that in the past. It's only usually a week before the X date when things really kick off and things sell off. But they were right to look through it. And, you know, things are kind of okay again. And we'll probably get a bit of a relief rally, despite the fact there wasn't much of a fall in the first place. Yeah, Friday was a strong day for markets. I mean, it's interesting if you look at the S&P 500 this year, the sharpest one day drop came back in February when the market fell 2% in a day. Now, that's not much at all, is it? A 2% fall is the worst we've had in a day. So, for example, if you look at last year, 2022, a 2% drop would have just been the 24th worst day of the year. And obviously, if you look at 2020, when we had the big pandemic sell-off, you were getting drops of 8, 10, 12% in a day. So this is really calm, isn't it? We're not over-exaggerating here. I wonder if it's something to do with retail investors kind of getting pissed off with the market. You know, they're just saying, well, I'm not going to get involved this time around. I got burnt previously and, you know, I'm going to step back now, go for my defensive stocks, maybe be careful. I don't think that's what's happening at all. People are piling into (laughs) NVIDIA, which is going to the moon, and all these AI companies going to the moon. And yet everything else, you've said before, if you look at the S&P 500 without the top 10 stocks, I think it's down slightly this year. So it seems to be, if you think of the market as like an ocean, it's calm on top. There's no waves. But beneath, it's just churning. There's loads of riptides going on. Yeah, we looked at this on the Sunday evening call with members. We looked at a heat map of the US market and it kind of shades in blocks according to whether stocks have gone up or down. And all the mega cap stuff was green. All the kind of AI stocks were green. And then there was just a sea of red. So it is like there's a kind of whirlpool, which is kind of positive for these AI stocks. And then everything else is kind of swirling down into oblivion. Well, I wouldn't go that far. It's <laughs> swirling to oblivion, but they're just not going up like the AI stocks are. It's a K-shaped market. I've heard people talk about it. There's the up stocks and then the down stocks. Yeah. But at the index level, you just aggregate everything. It's gently moving upwards this year. 
And if you look at the VIX index, which people kind of think of as a gauge of fear in the market, that is at the lowest levels since before the pandemic. Yeah, so this is constructed based on option prices, and it's out of the money options on the S&P 500 with a one month expiry date. So it's kind of looking at how much the S&P is going to move over the coming month. Now, if people don't think it's going to move much, they're not going to buy the options. So people just don't think it's going to break out of this range. If they did, they'd be buying options and the VIX index would be higher. So at the moment, it's around 14.8, the last I looked. And the median, the typical value would be around 16% since it was created in the 1990s, at the beginning of 1990. And in the real fear periods, it goes up to like 80, doesn't it, when we're on the verge of the apocalypse? Yeah. Global financial crisis was 80. And then the sell-off during the pandemic again, it touched 80 and went a bit above. So I'd say at the moment, what it's really telling you is that people don't think it's going to move much and, you know, very quiet. Or at least don't think the price of buying the options is worth the insurance. Yeah, they're likely to pay off. And there's an equivalent fear gauge, if you like, for the bond market, isn't there? I know it works slightly differently. Yeah, so this is based on options prices for treasury futures. And again, because it's fixed income, it's more complicated, as always. Bonds, more complicated than stocks. So two-year, five-year, 10-year and 30-year treasury futures are the options that it looks at. And again, not much volatility there. Yeah, so this is the MOVE index, M-O-V-E. And it is actually still at quite elevated levels relative to history, but nowhere near the levels we saw in March, where you had the onset of the banking crisis and it just spiked to, I think, almost record levels. But we have just had the bond apocalypse over the last year or so. So you can kind of see why treasury traders are a little bit jumpy, because, you know, we've just seen a kind of historic move. And the whole dynamics of the market have changed, haven't they? With the Fed going from buyer of treasuries to seller of treasuries on a net basis. Yeah, so the size of the Fed balance sheet is shrinking again after we have the hiccup from the banking crisis. And so the kind of marginal buyer of treasuries has kind of disappeared and the Fed's quantitative easing program is unwinding again. So you can kind of see why bond volatility is greater. What usually happens, though, is you don't have separation of markets. You don't have one market which is just volatile without spilling volatility into the other asset classes. But that's exactly what's happening right now with bond volatility being high and equity volatility being low. But still with the bond volatility, it's a lot lower than it was. It's been declining over the last three months. And if we look at another fixed income market, which is usually very sensitive to cycles. So this is the corporate bond market. Credit spreads there which is the compensation you receive for taking credit risk, those really haven't increased. So again, people aren't really pricing in much of a deterioration of the US economy, despite the fact that defaults are picking up. So I feel like everyone's quite relaxed. The market's ticking over nicely. And we're here saying everyone should be a bit more nervous. But maybe things are good, right? The Fed has been hiking. It hasn't blown up the economy. I'd say the market's coped better with it than anyone expected. Inflation seems to be coming down nicely in the US now and hopefully in Europe. So maybe this sort of fabled soft landing is back on the table. Yeah, I mean, Jerome Powell said that there were 50-50 odds of a soft landing. And it's looking more likely, I'd say, because if inflation does come down without unemployment increasing a lot, that would be great. But if you look at the tightness of the US labour market, the latest employment data showed that there's a tick upwards in the tightness 
In other words, there are more jobs available for every person who's unemployed now than there were previously. It's gone up to 1.8 jobs. So that's going to be more inflationary. So I suspect this stubborn core inflation component is going to be stickier. And that means it's going to be harder for the Fed to kind of stamp out that remaining 2% above its target. But we're seeing that in the UK as well. And often what you see with inflation is you get multiple spikes. After a first spike, you get a secondary one. And so that might well happen this time around as well. But it feels like there's going to have to be something to spike volatility again. But the market's just waiting to see what it is. And some people have postulated that now we're over the debt ceiling and we're like, phew, the US didn't default, all is well with the world. But hang on, the Treasury almost ran out of money and it needs to sort of get a lot more money in through the door. And maybe that could cause a problem in itself. So what actually happens when the US is approaching a debt ceiling is that they stop being able to issue new debt. Now, you might think that's not a big deal. It wouldn't cause much of an issue until you realise how much debt the US government issues per month. So if we look at the gross issuance, now just to explain what this means, gross issuance is the amount of new debt which the US government is auctioning off to get money into its coffers. Net issuance subtracts the amount of bonds which mature. So it's how much outstanding change you've got once you subtract the stuff which is disappearing. So the gross issuance to start with, take a rough guess at how much it is per year, Michael. Wow, well, how much debt the US issues per year? It's got to be in the trillions. So just to look at 2022, it was 16.7 trillion. Jesus. And 21 was 19.5. And 2020, which is the biggie because of the COVID costs, it was 20.9 trillion or almost 21 trillion. So this is the gross amount. That's gross issuance. So there we're looking at around 1.2 to 1.6 trillion per month in total. But I feel like what matters more is the net amount, isn't it? Because what matters is the amount of bonds out there available for the market to buy, really. The amount of net issuance is much less, obviously, because a lot of the bonds are going to mature. The number comes down a lot as a result of that. So the net issuance is kind of telling you what gets added to the US's total debt pile each year. Exactly, yeah. And that's been kind of creeping up over the years. But there are some years in which the net issuance is negative. So, for example, 2000, 2001, the size of the US debt shrank. And so that was negative net issuance. And then we got into a load of wars and had a lot more net issuance again. Yeah, I mean, war is typically such an expensive thing that you have to have a lot of issuance. COVID was a kind of war against a disease. So, again, that increased issuance a lot. So in 2020, there was net issuance of 4.3 trillion, which was really outstandingly large. Usually it's around 1 trillion, which the US adds to the debt. That's what we had in 2018, 2019, and then again in 2021 and 2022. So the context we're in now is that the Treasury's balance in its general account, like its current account, dropped from $700 billion at the end of last year to under $50 billion now. And obviously it needs to build it back up needs to start issuing more debt. And Morgan Stanley think that it's going to have to issue something like $730 billion over the next three months and a total of one and a quarter trillion dollars over the rest of the year. So that's a lot if it's net issuance. And that's pretty worrying because the question is always who's going to buy it. You've got a lot more supply, not necessarily more demand if people are kind of complacent about risk. So it could be the case that there's not going to be a ready market for all of that issuance. Now, generally, 
There's a lot of demand, structural demand for US treasuries. There are people who have to buy it. These would be entities like insurance companies, pension funds, maybe banks have to have lots of this safe stuff. So they have to buy it. Money market funds, another group of typical buyers of this safe stuff. But are they going to step up to the plate this time? Someone's going to have to buy it. The problem, I think, is that you've got to look at the yields that these things are going to be paying out. And the problem, I think, is that if you've got reverse repo, which is now dominating US money market funds. So this is when a money market fund gives their money to the Fed and the Fed in return gives them US treasuries, which they've got on their balance sheet. And so it's like you temporarily own them and you get a yield from doing that. So if the reverse repo yield is less than the treasury yield, then sure, you'll buy the treasuries. But if the treasury yield is lower than the reverse repo yield, then you're not going to buy them. So I think this is set a kind of bar, if you like, for where people are going to be willing to buy these T bills. So unless the yield increases a little bit, although it's pretty high at the moment, it's not going to remain attractive. So it seems the danger here, or at least one of the dangers, is supply and demand, right? You've got a lot more supply coming onto the market of treasuries. Is there going to be the demand? And if not, yields are going to spike. Simple as that, right? Yeah. So it's going to be a problem for the US if they have to issue, and you know, the coupons are large now, because if you're issuing a trillion a month, then you're just thinking, well, if it's going to pick up a higher coupon, you're not going to really want to issue that debt. But they have to. They don't have a choice. It's also the case that all other debt would reprice higher, wouldn't it? Corporations basically pay the treasury yield process spread based on their creditworthiness. So if yields go up on treasuries, everyone's going to start paying more. Yeah, the treasury yield floats all the kind of fixed income boats when it comes to interest rates. So that's going to be a problem for corporates if they have to roll over their debt and they're having to pay more to do that. So really, this is going to be a problem for everyone if yields do increase at the short end of the curve even further. And some people have said that, let's say money market funds, for example, don't step up to the plate and start buying all these new treasury bills because they can just use reverse repo, then other investors will have to come in. And to do that, they'll have to sell whatever other assets they hold, which will therefore depress those prices or reduce liquidity further. And there's already some liquidity challenges going on. So that's your contagion route right there. So I think, you know, there's potentially a kind of source of volatility here, which is a flood of new issuance in the treasury market. People are selling other stuff to buy it, perhaps, or moving their money out of bank deposits to buy it. Remember, that's the other destabilizing factor, which caused a lot of these bank runs. Because if people see the deposits are falling now, they're very sensitive to it. But if it's just people buying treasuries because it's got a yield pickup, it's not for sinister reasons, but it could kind of trigger this runaway risk. It's interesting if you look back to 2011, when it was the last time we came really close to the US defaulting, after they finally resolved the issue and raised the debt ceiling, then we did start to see some really sharp moves in markets. So I think in the three weeks after the resolution, the S&P 500 fell over 12%. 10-year Treasury yields actually declined sharply, pushing bond prices up and credit spreads widened significantly. So last time this happened, there was a big move in markets afterwards. What's interesting then was that inflation wasn't particularly high. So the bond and equity correlation was still negative. So when people were scared, ironically, the US debt got downgraded. What did they buy? They bought US debt because they were scared and they sold their equity. This time around, I'm not convinced that's going to be what people do because inflation is still running pretty hot. 
and the real yield on a lot of these treasuries is not far off zero. But do you buy this story that we've now resolved the debt ceiling and ironically, <laughs> the resolution is what's going to blow up the world? It seems like a reach to me. I don't think I buy it. Well, some people have pointed out that Morgan Stanley, who published this note, are actually quite bearish on markets. So if you're playing devil's advocate, you could always say, well, you know, they're just trying to justify their bearish view. Just trying to find something that's going to blow up the world. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's right. We weren't wrong. Yeah, the market's wrong. We weren't wrong. I mean, like logically, when you walk through the steps, it makes sense what they're saying. Just something in me says, no, nah, I don't think it's going to be a big problem. I don't think it's going to be a problem either, because I think, you know, the amount of issuance is so large and there are such structural buyers, so many structural buyers of US treasuries, that I think they'll just absorb the new issuance easily. And if the worst came to the worst and they really couldn't find buyers at a reasonable price, you know who's going to step in. They always <laughs> step in, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to the treasury market, they just can't afford not to step in. Jerome Powell's ready. Yeah, he is. And they have to be, right? If this market goes wrong, it really is the end of the US. And certainly you would kind of pull the rug under all markets if that happened. If liquidity just dried up or there were failed auctions, you know, that would be really worrying. Certainly it's a contrarian view, isn't it, that this is going to happen? Because like you say, VIX, which is the market expectations for volatility over the next month or whatever it is, they think it's going to continue to be calm. I think there are certain markets where higher rates at the short end of the curve are kind of problematic. And this is floating rate debt, where you do get a continual reset of the coupon. Now, with a fixed income debt, obviously that doesn't happen. The coupon's frozen in when the thing's issued. But some real estate funding is based on floating rates. So that would immediately pick up this higher rate. So that could be problematic and make this sell-off in real estate even worse. Yeah, I think there is going to be something which spikes volatility and rattles markets again, because there always is. But is it the mechanics of the treasury market? I don't know. For me, it's more likely to be those parts of the market which, yeah, are just on a lag and are waiting to get affected by higher interest rates, like commercial real estate, as we've said before, or some sort of emerging market starts defaulting on its dollar bonds, something like that. But look, when you shake the tree, things happen. You can never predict what they're going to be or what the kind of loosest thing is going to be. But every shock unleashes a new kind of set of secondary problems. You know, the COVID thing, we got the inflation shock, the supply chain issues with the credit crisis. You got all of these dodgy companies which suddenly came to light, which had had too much leverage. So I'm sure this is going to unleash some kind of new secondary crisis, but I just don't know what it's going to be. To me right now, it seems we're in that kind of situation where whatever your pre-existing biases about stock markets are, if you're an instinctive bear or an instinctive bull, you can find evidence out there to justify your position to either be defensive or just piling into growth stocks right now. And that we said with Morgan Stanley, everyone's kind of trying to confirm these beliefs rather than shifting their beliefs. That's what it looks like to me. But the fundamentals, I think, are always something to fall back on. And here, if you look at earnings growth, it has been awful in aggregate for the S&P 500. And an earnings recession is usually terrible news for the S&P. And yet this time around, it's just completely shrugged off the earnings recession. Well, it's been awful in the sense that, yeah, companies' earnings are shrinking slightly, like, was it 2% year over year? But it's been a lot better than people expected, which was 6 or 7% down year over year. But still, you know, earnings should go up. If that's the kind of understanding about what happens to stocks over the long term, then two successive quarters where it doesn't 
and people are still expecting a third one, that should be bad for equity markets. And yet what we're seeing is a really strong rally. That's not great, I don't think. But the jam is coming tomorrow. They expect <laughs> earnings to pick up significantly <laughs> at the end of this year and into next year. Chat GPT, how can I fabricate a rally when <laughs> fundamentals are getting worse? Should we try that? It's possible for a stock market rally to occur even when earnings are falling. The primary factors that can contribute to a rally in such situations include investor sentiment, lower interest rates, relief rally. <laughs> it's a good answer. Buyback programs, sector rotation. Please note that investing under such market conditions can be risky and it's essential to conduct thorough research and seek advice from a financial advisor before making any decisions. I think it tags that onto every answer it ever gives. <laughs> I mean, what do you think? Are you still thinking more defensively? Yeah, so in fact, my fund portfolio over the last week has done really well. So the really toxic stuff, which was toxic, is now not so toxic. My big box shares have gone up. Scottish mortgage is up. You know, it's all looking quite, uh, quite rosy. It's a risk on, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. The one which isn't doing so well yet is the MSCI USA Banks ETF. That was only up about 3% over the last week. But, you know, the others are looking quite rosy. All is well in the Nikisa household. <laughs> it's so funny because Laura said, you know, she admitted, it was almost like a confession. She said, I bought some NVIDIA stock. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, she said, I'm so bored. And then she listened to the episode we recorded last week and she said, oh, no. <laughs> well, he's having an enormous rally. It seems to be cooling down now. But I think she was, uh, she said it was just so boring in markets that she just wanted a bit of excitement in her portfolio. What's Laura's stock picking like? Is it a positive indicator or is she late to the party usually? She's usually quite good. You know, she won this competition we had for stock picking, if you remember, or fun picking. I had to buy her a nice screen maker as a result. I couldn't give her the prize because it looked like a fix. That would be illegal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she chose the best funds. So for her, I think it's kind of intuition. You know, she kind of goes for stuff which she feels is going to do best. But she's pretty clued up. She'll probably do well. She always says she feels it in her waters. So I suggested we call it like Laura's Waters PLC, you know, the fund management company. Be interesting to see how much capital that attracts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about here such as the pickup in treasury issuance, which is to come, are kind of short-term things, right? They might affect the next six months or a year. But there was an interesting report from AQR Capital Management, which said that if you just zoom out and look at the macroeconomic factors, uncertainty is currently highly elevated relative to history, is what they say. And interestingly, they find that when you look back through the data, when macro uncertainty is high, typically volatility tends to pick up a lot and stock returns are negative, which doesn't bode well. But it's interesting how they defined it. I mean, I've had a crack at defining these in the past myself when I used to work in investment banking. What they've done is really interesting. They try to look at forecasting each of these macro numbers like GDP, like inflation. Then they look at the deviation between the model forecast and what actually happens. So this is kind of like a surprise index. Imagine you've got a kind of dumb predictor. How different is the market from that dumb predictor? And when those deviations are bigger, that's when macro uncertainty is biggest. And it varies a lot over time. You know, it spiked in 2020, but it's still not fallen back from that spike completely. It's kind of fallen to half of its previous uncertainty. And this is kind of consistent with what Stanley Druckenmiller has been saying, 
which is that it's really hard to forecast at the moment because of this uncertainty. Yeah, and AQR think that maybe we're in such an uncertain time because of two things. Firstly, central banks around the world are really facing trade-offs between inflation on one hand and getting that down and not crushing employment on the other hand, right? So how high are interest rates going to go? And then secondly, they say that market expectations for interest rates, inflation and growth, they disagree significantly with what policymakers forecast. And we see this especially, don't we, in the US around interest rates. So the market really expects rates to peak like now or imminently and then fall over the next year. Whereas the Fed's like, hmm, we're going to wait and see, but rates are going to stay higher and for longer is the central case. There has been a bit of capitulation in the terms of the Fed funds futures market, but still it's way off what the Fed says is going to happen. But I wonder if this is just kind of uncertainty inflation, where you just get used to a world in which uncertainty is greater. You know, we've had such big shocks recently that, you know, people have just got punch drunk and they're just used to the fact that things are uncertain and it takes more to shock them. Well, that's interesting because you'd think that if uncertainty was high, then volatility should go along with that. And interestingly, this AQR report finds that when their macro index has been at extreme levels in the past, US stocks see an average annualized return of minus 16% versus plus 6% in any other month. So they really do find a correlation here that when there's a lot of uncertainty in the market, it's not good for stocks. What's also interesting is there was a really long period when their uncertainty index or any uncertainty index was very low. People call this the great moderation, but there was a long period between the end of the Volcker era and 2008, the global financial crisis, when macro uncertainty was really low. Central banks were kind of predictable, inflation wasn't particularly high, and inflation targeting seemed to be working. Markets just trundled along. Of course, there were shocks in 87. But overall, things were more predictable. We lived in a more certain world. And then with 2008, there was a shock. Then we had another period of low uncertainty. But then suddenly in 2020, everything kind of unraveled. Yeah, if you're trying to build any kind of backward looking model, all you need to do is find some data that spikes in 2008 and 2020. <laughs> and you go, yes, I solved it. <laughs> it's predictive. Another set of really interesting things to look at, you know, kind of parenthetically, is surprise indices, which kind of do what they've done here with AQR's uncertainty index. But you just look at what economists forecast for every indicator, GDP, inflation, whatever. And then the index goes up if there's a positive surprise and down if it's a negative surprise. And it's called the surprise index. And there's one created by Citi. There was one created at the bank where I worked. But it's surprisingly good at telling you what's going to happen in markets. So when things are surprising on the upside, then markets rally. When they surprise on the downside, you get a market fall. Well, that's kind of what I was getting at when I said, yes, we're in an earnings recession, but it wasn't as bad an earnings recession as people thought it was going to be. So the surprise is on the upside. And if you look at the surprise index right now, and Yardini publishes it regularly, it is heading upwards quite aggressively right now. So that's like a good surprise, a surprise birthday party, not a surprise illness. <laughs> that's right. I hate surprise birthday parties, though. Yeah, they're grim. I mean, if we accept this argument that we are in particularly uncertain times, the question is, what do we do about it as investors, right? But I think it really depends on which way you think it's going to go in terms of uncertainty, because the way this uncertainty resolves itself is usually a crisis. So there's usually a period when you're uncertain about what's going to happen, and then something very definitively does happen. If it's a positive outcome, 
which is falling inflation, not a big fall in US growth. Well, you know, then it's all guns blazing for risky assets. Then we'd hit new all-time highs within the next 12 months, probably, wouldn't we? No question. You know, I think we'd be going back to the story over the last decade, which is growth stocks, and then valuations will push even higher. Or if you think there's going to be a secondary inflation spike, which many people do now, then, you know, you can kind of replay some of the trades which have done well in that kind of crisis. Inflation-linked bonds would obviously be one of them. Another one would be to go for safe assets like money market funds, which obviously many people have. But what if I don't know about these two outcomes, Roman? What if I really, really don't know which is going to happen? Well, one way to approach it is to say, what's the probability for each of these different outcomes? If you are completely uncertain, you just set it to 50% you know, for the two outcomes, or just list some likely outcomes, assign probabilities to them, and then work out a portfolio that would do well in pretty much all of those. That's the kind of qualitative way you'd approach it. So if we're at that kind of fork in the road now, where, yeah, we could be soaring to new all-time highs, or we could be going to another 20% drawdown, and I don't know which one it is. So I'm going to have half my portfolio in defensive assets and half in growthy assets. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Or is this just not hedging anything? Well, many people are kind of going for income. So if you look at flows in the United States right now, one of the hottest funds of all is JP Morgan Equity Premium Income, or JEPI. Yeah, I'm just looking at the fact sheet. It says it writes out of the money S&P 500 index call options, disciplined options overlay. <laughs> That's what it says. So this is a perfect environment for JEPI. And what this does is it sells upside to somebody else via options. So if you don't think the S&P is going to rally, you'd buy this fund and effectively sell that upside to somebody else and you pocket the premium and that enhances the yield of the fund. So it's like the S&P, but it's got a yield of about 9.8%. So if you don't think markets are going to break out of this range, it makes absolute sense to do that, to buy one of these so-called buy right funds. And there's one for the NASDAQ as well, which is called QYLD, which is now also launched in the UK. So these are kind of bond-like in the sense that their upside is limited, but they do pay out a very high income. But if you do think there's going to be this huge rally scenario, then you're going to underperform with this fund. And if you hold these long-term, of course, you'll underperform as well. So if you're uncertain about what to do with your portfolio and you're suffering from inactivity as a result of that, why not join our community where you can discuss it with other people who are in the same boat? To do that, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is how do minimum volatility funds work? And do they work? So let's say we're designing one of these minimum volatility funds. There are various ways to approach it. The first one is simply to choose boring stocks. So you choose stocks which aren't very exciting, not tech stocks. You'd go for things like utilities, which aren't very volatile in the first place. The second way you can approach it is to choose stocks which diversify one another, so are not correlated. And that way you can kind of dampen the overall volatility of the portfolio. So this combination of low volatility stocks combined with maximum diversification, uncorrelated stocks, dampens the volatility, but unfortunately, it also reduces its long-term return usually. So that's the drawback of these things. So if we do enter that scenario where there's a strong rally, you're going to regret buying this thing. If there's a market move downwards, then usually these things fall less. 
And this kind of theory about minimum volatility potentially outperforming in the long term, on a risk-adjusted basis at least, kind of comes from the farmer and French factors, right? Yeah, so that would be if you buy single stocks, which have got low volatility, that does tend to outperform long term. But for these portfolios, for whatever reason, if you actually look at the numbers, they don't perform well during rallies and they've underperformed long term. So somehow between the theory and the practice of these funds, it doesn't quite work. So you're definitely trading the upside for some sort of downside protection, aren't you? The idea is, yes, you're not going to have the rally of the tech stocks, but also you're not going to crash as much. But I guess it's also important to say that low volatility does not mean no volatility, does it? These <laughs> things do crash. And a lot of this comes down to the construction of the fund, like you say. So the two approaches where on one hand, you could just look back over the last 12 months or whatever it might be and pick the least volatile stocks and put them all in a big pile. And there's your minimum volatility fund. Or on the other hand, you could try to do something a bit more clever and find stocks that diversify each other, like you say, so they'll offset each other's gains and losses. And those two approaches seem to have very different characteristics when it comes to returns. So that first one where you're just picking all the low volatile stocks over the last 12 months, that's inevitably going to have a very high sector concentration, isn't it? So it could be that energy stocks haven't been very volatile, for example. And so it buys a load of energy stocks, but then we have an energy crash and they all suffer together. So if you aren't going to buy one of these funds, it's really important to understand how it's constructed and how constrained its allocation is. Sometimes you have one of these minimum vol funds which can't stray too far from a parent index. So in the case of SPLV, for example, this is a US fund which has no restriction on the sector allocation. Now, that could get badly burnt if there's a sector rotation away from its preferred sectors, whereas USMV does contain constraints. They can't tilt more than 5% in either direction away from the parent index. So just be aware of those tilts, which may themselves be a risk for these minimum volatility funds, because what you don't want, presumably you're buying these because you want to avoid risk. You don't want to create a new risk in your portfolio. So, for example, if we look at SPLV's current allocation to sectors, two thirds of its allocation is in just three sectors. That's consumer staples, that's a typical defensive sector, utilities, and healthcare. So, if something bad were to happen to just one of those sectors, it could take a big chunk out of this fund. Yeah, it's got a high concentration risk, hasn't it? Even though they're defensive sectors, you could get something which affects all the utility companies, for example, some kind of new regulation or whatever it might be. But you can always drill into the contents. So just make sure it's something you're happy with. And if you do see a big sector concentration or a big country concentration, then just be careful about that fund because it may not be as safe as you think. And just generally for minimum volatility funds, or sometimes they're called low volatility funds, when would you think about buying one? I know you did actually buy one in the past. I did, but then Vanguard shut it down. Thanks, Vanguard. You're the only one taking risk off the table. And they were like, we can't keep the fund open just for ramen. <laughs> but that's why I had to spend two years building up my equity allocation again. It's because they shut down Minimum Vol. I was really upset about that. So what environment would you actually look to MinVol in? You see, now I probably wouldn't do it because of the fact that it does underperform long term. Just looking at the stats for these MinVol funds, they just don't perform very well long term. It's not really a kind of fire and forget thing. So what I've decided was simply to ignore volatility and just stick my head in the sand and just say, look, it's going to be in there. I don't care what happens. I'm just hoping for a good outcome over decades. I mean, that's my approach too. 
And I think even if minimum volatility did kind of work over the long term, it's probably still not aligned with most people's psychology when it comes to investing. Like when there is a big rally and you miss out on it because you hold minimum volatility funds, I think there's a big danger you sell them and, you know, buy the broad market or go into just the tech stocks. And when there's a big crash and the market's down 40%, but you're only down 30%, I think you still feel pretty bad. <laughs> like, I don't think minimum volatility stops you from doing the bad thing, which is selling your equity in a crash necessarily. I think this is such an important point, Michael, you know, that some of these funds, they sound good on paper, but if they're not kind of tuned to investor psychology, they're just not going to work. You're not going to stick with it. And this is a really tough one to love long term, like you say. I think most people just couldn't stay with it long term. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.